So we also, this is the first time we get to hear about the oily taint um, on the, on Sedin and um, get ready to hear about uh, his oily taint a lot because we're going to hear about it. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I, I, to, to be honest with you, I had this thought. I was listening to the audiobook at that point and they kept saying the taint uh-huh. a lot. It was, the taint was in there deep and hard and, and stuff. Oily. And, and I was like, Dirty. was this a bet that Robert Jordan had with somebody that he could get taint into his, his story like a bunch of times? No, we just have, we just have dirty minds, James. Welcome, friends, to episode 207 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week, we discuss the first third of Robert Jordan's 1990 novel, The Eye of the World, book one of The Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time turns, and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth, and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. In one age, called the 2020s by some, an age yet to come, an age long past, a podcast began recording a series on a fantasy series called The Wheel of Time and its new Amazon adaptation. The podcast was not beginning. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of The Wheel of Time, but it was a beginning. Welcome. It does feel like we're, <laughs> we're in a pattern, right? It yeah. It kind of feels like we're, we've been here before. Well, it also feels like this could be the start of something big. Because if yeah. this series goes on to cover many books, because there are many books in this series, yeah, this could be something we are going to have a lot of episodes on uh, eventually. Worst case scenario, even if this show doesn't continue on, I'm already just like so gleeful about this. Like it's it's everything that I've wanted it to be so far, and it's it's got the familiarity of a lot of other fantasy beginnings like you know it's got a lot of the 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 things that you're you know you're thinking that you want in this genre and then it's just taking me on a really warm journey so far even though it's like building up all these stakes and knowing how long the series is and how big the books are too is just like I don't know it's a comfort to me knowing that there's so much story and uh, I feel like so far with Robert Jordan I've been taking on a a journey that I feel I feel like I trust him already I'm I'm ready to read more I'm glad to hear it man Um, that that's that's awesome we have to talk about our history with this material, I think, to, to set the stage. But first, if you are new to uh, Ink to Film, welcome. Uh, we cover book-to-film adaptations. We've got over 200 episodes from before this covering lots of other things, including Lord of the Rings um, and other fantasy uh, adaptations and series. Um, but yeah, I am excited to actually get into The Wheel of Time. Um, this is one that we've had circled ever since it was announced. And it's a series that actually does mean a lot to me. And uh, rereading this first book um, helped me remember why. Um, so for my part, this is a series that I started reading when I was in middle school. Uh, my best recollection is probably somewhere in like, I don't know, 98 or so, somewhere in that range, 97, 98. Um, I started reading this because I think there were like six or seven books out at the time. And I, I devoured them. You know, I, I just loved I this was a time where I the bigger the book, the better I would go to bookstores uh-huh. and my mom would tell me I could buy one book and I would I love Wheel of Time because I could pick up one book and it would be a thousand pages. 
and mm-hmm. it would last me, you know? Um, so I, I liked that. And then I had just started getting into D&D around this time, and this felt very much like D&D, um, which just played right into my, you know, uh, middle school heart. And I was not super well-read in fantasy. I'd only really been reading some Dragonlance, which, again, very heavily D&D, and a few other uh, books here or there um, that are escaping my mind. But I know I'd read some other fantasy. But then I found this one, and it just was hitting all the right notes. And um, I had read The Hobbit, but I actually had not read The Lord of the Rings. I was a little bit familiar with the story of The Lord of the Rings because I had seen... Uh, some of the animated adaptations, but this is well before the movies, so I had uh, the the Peter Jackson films, so I hadn't I didn't have that background going in to like recognize a lot of the similarities, um, mm-hmm. so a lot of that stuff completely over my head. Um, so rereading it now, so it's like fresh to you, like the first time basically. It was the first time I had ever encountered a lot of these tropes, a lot of these archetypes. And I mean, there's a reason that they tend to work, right? Especially for young boys uh, like me. And it, it hit all the right buttons. I love this series and I, I read it all through high school and I think into early college where I caught up with the series uh, at some point before that. And then it was started to become a point where it was like being delayed, being delayed. And then Robert Jordan passed away and the series got passed off. Um, which we'll talk about. Um, and I, yeah, I didn't end up finishing it. So I, I have not finished wow. the series. Um, wow. I was someone who resisted a little bit the change in authors. Uh, although mm-hmm. I, I am a fan of Brandon Sanderson now. Um, at the time, I didn't know who he was. And I felt like it was very strange to have someone else writing the series that I loved. And it felt different. And so I kind of fell off of it. But there were other things, there are other contributing factors, including me falling in love with. Uh, Song of Ice and Fire, which became my like favorite fantasy series um, when I found that one in college. And um, I also like because I had, it, it started becoming like a two year thing between every book. I got to the point where I felt like I needed to start the series over to remind myself what was going on. And it's such an immense series that just the idea of starting it over was overwhelming to me. So I've been putting it off. So it's always been something I've been re- re- uh, meaning to revisit. Um, so I'm glad that we actually got to do it for the podcast here. So that's my my long winded <laughs> my background with the with the story. It's been over 20 years since I've read this book, but I'm going back now and reading it. Very cool. What uh, what was your experience? Wheel of Time. I know you've heard of it, but yeah. What yeah. Else? So I started reading this like a week and a half ago. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. So I, I mean, I've ha- I've heard glowing reviews of Wheel of Time. You know. I can remember the beginnings of of uh, Game of Thrones on TV, like the HBO adaptation and, and like um, watching that. And re- then I went and read George R. R. Martin's books. And I remember people being like, oh, if you like that, you're going to love Wheel of Time. You got to check out Wheel of Time. Like, you know, it's, it's another massive fantasy staple. If you like Tolkien, you like this, you like that, you're going to like it. So I, I should check it out. And, and honestly, it was a daunting, like behemoth of a project that, I, that at some point I really did want to want to read it. And then just as time went on, it built and built and I wanted to read it more and more. And then I, the, we had the podcast and it's hard to read outside of the podcast some, yeah. sometimes. And I, you know, I do some, but, and, and actually I've read some Brandon Sanderson outside of the podcast, mm. but it is tough. It's, it's like without the amount of reading that we do some of the time. Uh, and so I've never been able to, to go through this and I think I've kind of been waiting for it, yeah. but I've like, you know, heard 
you talk about it. My girlfriend, Caitlin, read like all of the books during like at the start of COVID, like maybe even before COVID officially started, Mm -hmm. before any sort of lockdown or anything like that. She had started the series and then just basically that was like what she's always going to associate those two things. I think Wheel of Time and like lockdown and that time period and that year and everything. Yeah. And you you know, a year and a half. I don't I don't know. It was a long time. So knowing that like her sensibilities line up with mine and you've talked about it and other people in my life have talked to me about it. I've always I've known that I was going to read it. And then actually sitting down to read it was this really fun experience where I was like, damn, I get it. I finally get it. You know, like it, it it's like I said, there's a lot of familiarity to it, but it, it, it in a good way. You know, I think it's it's like it's setting itself up to be as different as it wants to be. But currently it's sort of in that safe space. And, and like I know it'll expand out from there. Um, but yeah, that's sort of my that's sort of my history. I've seen the trailer since the trailer. I was like, oh, man, like I hope that this does justice just for the sheer fact that like we'll get to carry on and continue it. And you mentioned like um, how long the story is and how Sanderson finished it. Um, my girlfriend also is a massive Sanderson fan, having read like all of his books now. And she tells me a lot about him and uh, knowing that there is an ending to the story there's like a comfort to it for me as well. Like now knowing that I can go through and read it all and it's all there. And, you know, hopefully I don't know what the consensus is, like the the Robert Jordan purists and the Sanderson fans that how where people land on how the story wrapped up. But from what I understand, Jordan had a, you know, really big like he had basically laid the template and, and Sanderson executed it as well as he could. So it's comforting to me to, and to know I really love getting sucked into long term stories that are always going to be there that no matter what's going on in your life, you can revisit these characters and continue to go down their journey with them. So yeah. I'm really excited to start this this journey with you. Yeah. And and with all of our listeners, I really hope that this series like I, I'm pulling for it, man. Um, I have my concerns. I have my anxieties, <laughs> uh, which I'm sure many longtime Wheel of Time fans have as well. Um, but I also share in the excitement and the hype. You know, I, I'm really excited to see this thing. I know there are going to be lots of changes. We've been doing 200 episodes of a podcast, learning about adaptations, and we've seen it go 100 different ways, you know. And so I'm really interested to see what way they take it, what gets changed. Um, but one thing that I was immediately struck with watching that trailer is just how how ingrained my personal uh, conception of a lot of these characters was like how I I have just been picturing these characters and uh, you know who they are and they've meant so much to me for so long that it is a bit jarring and I I get that sense that like we we encounter a lot of people who have this right like with with long time beloved series Um, and and it's happened to me a few times in the past but this time it really sung out to me uh, because it was this series I read as a child um, and I had kind of grown up with them. Um, I am open to, you know, different interpretations of characters, of course, but, um, it going back and rereading this first book reminded me of those early impressions. And it's like, oh yeah. And, and I can recognize why I formed the impression of like how land looked and how Rand was as, you know, as a young boy here at the start of the series and like all this stuff, like I have these deeply held impressions of what they look like and act like. Um, and, I'm going to be really curious to see how it strikes you reading it for the first time as an adult and uh, having the the existing trailer out there that has already been cast. And like, I'm wondering, how, were you picturing any of the actors in these roles? So I watched the trailer. I remember being like, that was cool. You know, like that. It seems fun. I hope I, you know, I hope it this is like what everybody was hoping that it was. Yeah. But 
I, I drew misconceptions from it because like I had no idea what was going on. Right. So like I thought for sure that Moiraine was was evil, like was going to be sort of an evil character mm-hmm. from the trailer because she seems and, and, you know, there's there's sort of the as we go through the, the beginning of the story, we get this idea that like let me, let me pause for a moment and just warn the listener. OK, so I have read beyond James has not. He has only read one third of this book. So when he's talking right now and he's talking going forward, he's basing it off of that much knowledge. If you don't want to know that much um, and if you're like new to Wheel of Time, period, be aware we're going to be kind of spoiling our observations from the first third of the novel, um, which is not a lot. It's probably going to be covered in the first few episodes of the series, I would guess. Um, but yeah, just just FYI. So as, your read of Moraine is she is not evil. OK, go ahead. Rosamund Pike, like the way that she was in the trailer, I was like, she seemed like super intimidating. And, you know, there's this idea that like there's more than meets the eye with some of these characters. Mm-hmm. And, and like, you know, there's a certain amount of skepticism that some of the characters have about certain other characters. And so it, it feels like there there could be something there eventually. But it like it, it kind of in the trailer, I like immediately was like when Moiraine showed up, I was like, oh, shit, this has got to be Rosamund Pike's character. Yeah. And then she. uh I was like, well, how is she going to fuck shit up? Like, how is it like she showed yeah. up in the village? And because we've studied stories as much as we have, I'm also picking up on a lot of things because like nothing is out is is done without intention. And so like there's a lot of things that crop up that I'm like, very important, very important. Like, it's just a throwaway line. Like mm-hmm. anytime history is being given, I'm like, that is factual. That's not just a legend. You know what I mean? That's right. not just a story. Somebody's saying like it's so a lot of that stuff is going into this. And and I kind of like that, though, because I'm like, OK, well, that's lore at this point to me, rather than some sort of like story being told or myth. Yeah, um, I like how it, the, the characters like seemed like pretty archetypal early on. And then they're quickly breaking some of those relationships down. And yeah and like uh, splitting them up in ways and um, just the journey so far, you know, going, leaving, leaving home, leaving the Shire in quotations, <laughs> like sort of area into, into the unknown and being chased by things felt familiar. We will get to the Lord of the Rings comparisons. Um, uh, so yeah, I want to just quickly also mention, uh, I don't know, we might end up cutting it from it, but uh, on pronunciations, we are going to uh, be going with, I guess, whatever occurs to us. I listened to the audiobook this time around, so I've, I've I've got some impressions from that. Some of them did not line up with the way that I had been pronouncing them for many years. And then the show is almost certainly going to pronounce things differently than either of those two things. So, um, And there's hot debate among fans how to pronounce certain names, certain cities, certain, you know. So there's just a ton of things, and we're going to try our best, and it might not line up with how you pronounce things, so we apologize for that, but so it goes. Um, yeah, man, I have a lot to react to there. Uh, I mean, Moiraine, uh, she is the catalyst, of course, in, in many ways. Her arrival is the catalyst, so you're right about that, and I think the, the trailer does show that. She is kind of mysterious, and a lot of people do think she's, uh, they distrust her, right? They distrust the Aes Sedai, and she is one, so, um, I think that's all intentional, right? Like, that, that idea of, like, what's her what's her true motives? And I think some of that is still going on. Like, we don't know what her true motives are. Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, she, and, she, but at the same time, she's a catalyst in almost, like, a Gandalf way as well. Mm-hmm. Like, quickly becoming, like, the powerful person who's who, like, you can lean on currently at the beginning of the story to, like, protect the party in, in like, uh, you know, against unknown odds and stuff. Like, right. Absolutely. Um, okay, so we are get, that's that's getting a little bit into plot, which we are going to do. We're going to do deep dive into the plot so far. Um, but before we do that, uh, I just want to get your general thoughts on 
what how do you feel about Robert Jordan's writing as compared to other fantasy series you've re- you've read? Um, do you find him to be more accessible? Do you find him to be like how do you find his way he handles description, characterization, stuff like that? It's interesting because like a lot of times when you approach fantasy you know, non-fantasy readers feel like it's it's uh, excessive. Like there's too much description. There's not enough going on and more like world building that's being given to you. But I always respond well to that. I always like the world building aspects. And like, honestly, some of the time early, especially early in stories, that can be the thing that keeps me invested more than even like the character interactions. And and that um, I find his to be a little more approachable, though, I would say, than, than like uh, your George R. R. Martin or your... Tolkien even maybe even because Tolkien is like a it, there's a there's a generational gap kind of thing there where, where he was like early fantasy in the way that it's it's extremely like poetic yeah. and, and well uh, and he's like, British and he was writing deliberately yeah. with a certain sort of flair that like a language he always came from like a language background too so he's trying to yeah like you said flair um so I, I find not that I, I in no way is it sparse like I think there's tons of description beautiful setting yeah i don't think anyone would call robert jordan's writing sparse <laughs> but it, I, for me it was more approachable like I, I, I found it a lot easier to read and just to keep reading and not yeah. have to take breaks in comparison to something like george r, r. martin so so not, so it is rich it's got a lot of detail but um you you found it engrossing right like you it, it, kept, right. it kept you invested and it wasn't dif- difficult to read exactly yeah uh i could totally see that so uh I have read a lot of books since I read this novel uh, back in the day, and uh, I've, I've studied writing quite a bit, and I definitely am looking at this from a writer's perspective now in a way that I never did originally. And yeah, I mean, I think the prose holds up. I think it um, it does evolve a little bit over the course of him writing the series, um, although it's it's pretty consistent throughout. Um, I do... He does have a ton of fucking details. Uh, he... he will describe, you know, someone's clothing and a look and, uh, you know, what they're carrying and them like walking over and setting something down. And that'll take two pages. And you're like, you're like, I just spent two pages describing that. Like it's but but it's like um, it's transportative, right? It makes you feel like you're in the world. It's good texture for me. I always. Yeah, I guess when I'm reading two pages like that, I I don't think about it in the moment. It's only after the fact that I'm like, oh, there was two pages. Right. And some people do think about it in the moment, you know? So that is a yeah. criticism some people have, and, and that's going to be stylistic and aesthetic, right? Like, how do you feel about it? Um, I'm someone who's read a lot of epic fantasy. You've read epic fantasy, so um, that tends to be the, sort of the mode. And he's one of the people who sort of established the mode, um, especially in American fantasy. Um, he is a very influential figure in that way. And um, a lot of times when people think of, like, the classic American epic fantasy style, a lot of them are thinking about Robert Jordan. Um, who is obviously heavily influenced by those who came before him. It's interesting to me, too, because I've heard George R. R. Martin speak so much about Tolkien, but not quite as much about Robert Jordan. Is it because they were more contemporaries? Yes. And, yeah, they were yeah. more contemporaries. I mean, uh, Game of Thrones comes out in 96, so six years after Wheel, uh, Eye of the World. Um, George R. R. Martin did, however, um, when, when Robert Jordan passed away, uh, I, I, he posted about the... Um, I, I didn't read the actual post, um, but it was, from what I understand, he praised the man and he mentioned that uh, Robert Jordan gave him a glowing review of A Game of Thrones when it came out. And that review was one of the things that helped launch George R. R. Martin's fantasy writing career. Um, so he credits him with that. 
Um, so he is an influential figure in a very direct way in that in that regard, right? Like I think he blurbed uh, Game of Thrones, which is massive at yeah. the time because he's one of the biggest authors working at the time when he did that. Uh, so I, I mean, just talking about authors and their connections and everything, I, I do want to talk about, and I'm sure you'll, you're going to have more details about this, but I want to talk about the Sanderson connection too because I think like the foresight and like the the like seeing the talent of someone like Sanderson and to to I don't know if he handpicked him to continue the books or anything like that, but like he he so maybe he helped kickstart George R. R. Martin's career, and then it seems like you know being attached to Wheel of Time probably gave Sanderson a lot of confidence and to continue on and and you know write in the ways that he has. Absolutely. So as for my sort of just general reaction reading this, um, I was filled with a lot of nostalgia for a certain time in my life, um, and. It's funny how doing that, right? Like you read something that you read at a certain time and or, or or watch a movie that you saw at a certain age or listen to a song that maybe was playing at a certain important moment in your life. But it kind of kind of looks like time travel kind of brings you back to that moment and that and this this obviously is not one moment because it's a big book. So instead, it's like a time frame in which I read this. And so I was of two minds literally reading it. I was I was like 12, 12 year old Luke reading a fantasy for the first time and just like having my mind blown and just loving it. And then I was adult Luke who has read a ton of other fantasy, you know, has written some fantasy myself and um, studied it and still like liking it, of course, but being able to analyze it in a critical way and in a way that is trying to suss out all of the craft that went into it. So kind of like an under the hood uh, read, which is what I normally do in these kind of books, trying to figure out like why the author is making certain choices, what's the effect, and how are they doing it. So I was able to approach the book from both of those perspectives, um, which made for a really fun read. Um, I, I I really enjoyed it, and I um, yeah I'm excited to read more of it and talk about it with you. Um, I'm going to do my best to be coy and leave the mysteries as mysteries and not not sort of tip my hand about future knowledge that I have. Um, and I'm just going to lean on asking you a lot of questions and you'll, and you'll just have to theorize <laughs> and react based off of what you know. Yeah. I'm looking forward to being wrong a lot. And, uh, <laughs> cause you know, my, I think my frame of reference of how some of the events in this are going to play out is always going to be based on like other fantasy I've read and yeah. just like, you know, some, some hints that we've gotten here and there. But, uh, I found myself thinking about what it would have been like to read this when I was young as well, though, you mm -hmm. know, because that's always an interesting thing to do. And you talked about how it becomes a snapshot of that time in your life. And um, it's it, it has this epic feeling. And there are like things that we're getting that are like outside of the realm of what's going on in this world and the way that the world works. And, you know, the hand of fate or something is moving things around and dreams and visions and like some other kinds of stuff like that, that that will always be important. Yeah. But um, prophecy. Yeah, it's it, and like I said before, I love this idea that like for you, it was something that like you were waiting on the books to come out and like a book would come out and you would read it and it would become that moment in your life. Like that was how Harry Potter and like tons of other books have been for me uh, when I was growing up. And it is it's interesting, too, because we have to like be careful not to have like rose tinted glasses about some of this stuff. Yeah. And like be able to look at it critically. So, you know, it, it coming at coming into it as an adult. There's a certain like cynicism that I think you have that you don't as a kid because you don't have the experiences and stuff. But I've been able to like sort of put myself in both frames of mind and be like just enjoying it 
and um, giving it a chance. You know, yeah. I think we're only a third of the way through this book right. so far. And it's, you know, it's to be expected that it's sort of Jordan is probably like looking at other writers before him for inspiration and things like that to sort of find his own voice. Yeah, uh, I think that's safe to say. So speaking of reading it as a how I read it as a child and reading it from a child's perspective, um, you may wonder, is this series YA? What is this? Um, that's a good question. And it's one that I think has been asked a lot. Um, and it has gone through phases. So it was originally sort of marketed as adult fantasy. And I think it still is considered adult fantasy. Um, however, it begins in a very YA feeling place. And sure. the publisher is well aware of that. And one of the things that they did was re-release the first book in a two-volume set specifically aimed at the young adult audience. And when they did that, they added a new prologue, which we both read. I read for the first time because um, I had never, I didn't even know about it because um, you told me it was in your copy of the book and I, that was the first I heard about it. Um, and that was added to the book by Robert Jordan to appeal more to the YA audience than the current prologue which deals with Luz Theron. So I, I'm excited to ask to talk about these two prologues in comparison to each other. But before we get to that, I just wanted to mention it's kind of both and in a way that is a little odd in fantasy. Um, but it, it also like totally works for it, I guess. And like it, it made sense that it appealed to me at my age because it was kind of YA, but with like hints of being for more adult. And I think mm -hmm. I liked stuff like that. I always wanted to be reading above my reading level, reading stuff that was more adult. And I like that it had that the hints of stuff. But this is not in any way like George R. R. Martin level of adult, uh, you know, not very different tone of a series. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because like series can grow with you. Yeah. Become more mature as time goes on. And I'm sure that this series probably does. I don't think Robert Jordan necessarily was like saying like his target demographic was young kids, but it seemed to speak to them. And then like to have like that experience of growing up with these characters and then be becoming more mature and uh, more mature themes coming into the books. I, I mean, like that's a invaluable thing. I think that's a that's a cool way to grow up with this series. And it means more to people if it, rather than maybe just remaining YA and sort of out outgrowing it at some point uh, in terms of like what you're interested in. I just want to make, make it clear. I'm not trying to uh, denigrate YA at all. Um, and say that it's somehow lesser or greater than if it's YA versus adult. I just think it's interesting that it kind of straddles those two categories of, of fiction uh, in a way and, and sort of appeals to readers of both. Yeah. And yeah, I guess it sounded like I was saying that like you outgrow YA at some point. I still read YA stuff. I still enjoy that sort of th those sort of stories as well. Yeah. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about who Robert Jordan was first before we get into the actual plot. Um, so his real name uh, is James Oliver Rigney Jr., and he was born in Charleston, South Carolina in 1948. He would go on to fight in Vietnam. He was a helicopter gunner, and he would then train troops after the war was over. Uh, while in Vietnam, he was awarded the, or after Vietnam, but for his, his uh, actions in Vietnam, he was awarded the Flying Cross, a Bronze Star, and two Vietnamese crosses. Um, I briefly read over these um awards these medals and they were basically all given for heroic valor acts of singular heroism um and that kind of stuff so it seems like he was uh well decorated for his time in vietnam 
Um, he attended military college in South Carolina when he returned, uh, where he majored in physics and became a nuclear engineer uh, in the Navy. Oh. Um, but around that time, he began his writing career. Um, he published under multiple pseudonyms, uh, including a historical series and a Western um, under two different pseudonyms. And then he would write uh, the Conan the Barbarian stories. Um, he is one of several writers who have written original ones, and his are considered some of the best that are not by Robert E. Howard uh, by fans of the series. So Robert E. Howard is the, the originator of Conan. So uh, Jordan was a history buff, and he enjoyed hunting, fishing, sailing, poker, chess, pool, and pipe collecting. He described himself as a high church Episcopalian and received communion more than once a week. He lived with his wife, Harriet McDougall, who works as a book editor currently with Tor Books. She was also Jordan's editor in a house that was built in 1797. Sometimes he is called one of America's greatest fantasy authors. Uh, he, his series is lauded for its complex magic systems and characters. Uh, Wheel of Time originally was supposed to be four or five books um, by Robert Jordan's own words. Um, however, with every time he would sit down to write it, he would end up expanding, expanding, expanding. And by the completion of the series, it was 4,410,000 words, comprising 14 books plus one prequel novel. And if you were to listen to that in audiobooks, it is 19 days, 5 hours, and 25 minutes of audio. <laughs> wow. So we got our work cut out for us. <laughs> it's a big one. Um, his series draws on numerous elements of both European and Asian mythology, most notably the cyclical nature of time found in Buddhism and Hinduism, the metaphysical concepts of balance and duality, and a respect for nature found in Taoism. Additionally, his creation story has similarities to the Abrahamic religions creator, light, and shaitan, the dark one. Uh, shaitan is also an Arabic word that is, in Islamic context is used as the name for the devil or Satan. It was also partly inspired by Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace. The Wheel of Time is notable for its length, detailed imaginary world and magic system, and large cast of characters. The 8th through 14th books reached number one on the New York Times bestseller list. As of 2021, the series has sold over 90 million copies worldwide, making it one of the best-selling epic fantasy series since The Lord of the Rings. So it's up there. This is a massive one. Um, it's interesting that it didn't hit number one until book eight. So that shows you that although it was popular, it took a little while before it hit that sort of mega fame. Um, and it grew and grew and grew over time. And then it's only going to grow more. It's about to sell a lot more copies. I can tell you that with, with this adaptation coming out. Especially if it's good. You know, Especially if, it if it's continues good. <laughs> to be, yeah, if it continues to be a thing in the zeitgeist for a while. Yeah. It'll stick around. Yeah. So uh, those Conan the Barbarian novels... Uh, Robert Jordan wrote for Tor books, um, including a novelization of the movie Conan the Destroyer. These proved successful, and in 1984, he, pro he proposed the idea for an epic fantasy series of three books to Tom Doherty, the head of Tor books. Doherty approved the idea, however, knowing that Jordan had a tendency to go long, he put Jordan on the contract for six books just in case. Jordan began writing the novel that became The Eye of the World then. Um, so this is kind of par for the course, where there's a lot of different like stories out there about the length of the original series and what it was intended to be. Um, the, the thing I quoted earlier was supposedly from Robert Jordan's own words. So this is maybe from Tom Doherty's perspective. Um, so the novel proved extremely difficult to write for Robert Jordan. 
uh, because characters and storylines changed consider- considerably during the writing process. This, this, this actually, had, I did not know this, and I thought it would be really interesting. The series was originally centered around an older man who discovered relatively late in life that he was the chosen one who had to save the world. However, Jordan deliberately decided to move closer to the tone and style of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring and made the characters younger and less experienced. Once the decision had been made, writing proceeded much more easily, and Jordan completed the second volume, The Great Hunt, at roughly the same time the first book was published. So that change ended up lighting a fire, and he was already known for writing quickly. Um, It is said that he wrote his first novel in 13 days. Um, and he continued to write these massive tomes at a breakneck pace early on, uh, publishing one a year for many years and before he slowed down to doing one every two years. That's so unbelievable. I can't even believe, I mean, like we talk about somebody like Stephen King who writes a lot, Yeah. but, but like not all Stephen King novels are this long and all of Robert Jordan's yeah. are. I mean, I don't know, know that, the, I don't know that Jordan writes faster than King, but they are, I think they're, they're of that same caliber of just insane speed. Um, so Tom Doherty enjoyed the eye of the world so much that he declared it, that it would be the biggest fantasy series since Tolkien. And he took the step of sending free review copies to bookstores in the United States to generate interest. The combined hardcover and trade paperback run of the novel sold out of its initial 40,000 strong print run sales then doubled with the publication of the second novel just eight months later, generating even more interest for the first book. So the series is popular, as we've discussed before. Um, it's it's finding success, but you know it's a first book. Uh, in in you know it's not his first book he's ever published, but it's his first book in the series. So it's it's kind of unknown. Um, so uh, it's growing, it's going growing over time. It's interesting to look back at the criticisms and uh, you know reactions to this early novel, um, and it does seem like people both loved and hated the. Uh, similarities to Tolkien. Many people thought it was great. They loved all the references to Tolkien. They thought it was this homage. They felt like it was, you know, it, it kind of in dialogue with Tolkien, was heavily referencing Tolkien, um, clearly influenced by him. Um, others saw it as copying, as, you know, stealing, as, as you know, pretending as, you've, if you've, as if these are original ideas and yet many of them are, are lifted right out of Fellowship of the Ring. Um, and I'm curious to know for you, because you are such a big Lord of the Rings fan, when you were reading and you were like, well, that is clearly very similar to Lord of the Rings. So, you know, you're encountering the mere draw for the first time and it's described just like a ring wraith, basically. Like there's so Mm -hmm. many things you can point to just the two rivers in general feels very much like Hobbiton, right? Um, Mm -hmm. how did you feel about that? Did you feel like it was a positive thing or did you feel a little bit of resistance? Like, I don't know how I feel about this guy doing this i i you know what i can see people being sort of upset about it when the first book came out but i'm you know i'm reading this story knowing that there's like 14 books or whatever and so that changes my perspective on it knowing that at some point it can't be the same thing anymore it's got to be a lot different and i think knowing that like the beginning can be somewhat similar i've you know there's been other stories that i've read other fantasy stories that do a similar kind of thing maybe they saw jordan do it and say said like i want to be in dialogue with tolkien as well and you know did a different spin on it i think there's room for those kinds of stories and so like it didn't bother me and i actually kind of liked like this nudge nudge like like hey like uh, this is clearly in conversation well and, uh, and I should say this was not a unique to him. 
lots of other fantasy authors are around this time and leading up to this were sort of copying Lord of the Rings, um, doing their own yep. versions and spins on Lord of the Rings. Terry Brooks comes to mind, some authors like that. Um, and, and for my money, his is actually less similar <laughs> than other authors I've read who are more clearly, uh, more clearly the same. The thing that works for me well is his fellowship per se. Yeah. Is, is different enough to where, and, and the characters are strong enough and clear enough to where I feel like it's um, in conversation rather than being like a direct, yeah. because I think character is extremely important. And if the characters were all, if he had like halflings or anything, if he had, you know what I mean? It would become like almost too much to bear. Yeah. But I think like he plays it just right here. And, you know, I don't know. It felt familiar and fun to me so far. And, and. No, it didn't bother me. Okay. I mean, it's good to know. Um, so it uh, clearly didn't bother me when I originally read it because I didn't know. I, I, you know, barely had any concept of what Lord of the Rings was. I, I, I had read The Hobbit, but I had not read the other books. Um, so it wasn't something that occurred to me. Um, I can see it now. Um, you know, I, I think he is more referencing and paying homage. Um, and, you know, he's borrowing. But that's okay. You know, you're allowed to do that. And he does absolutely. That all confirm. It goes on to be very different um, in many ways. Um, so, yeah, it's just kind of a starting place. And, it, you know, it works okay for him. I, You know, is that something that other authors should try and emulate? I don't know. I don't know. It, it's risky, right? Um, it's very easy to have publishers say no when they recognize something as being similar, very similar to certain other things, especially something like Lord of the Rings. You just have to read the room yeah. in terms of like what people are looking for currently. Cause I don't think if you think if you tried to do this right now, it'd probably be that. Oh with, no. Like, yeah. They yeah. do not want Lord of the Rings clones right now in fantasy. <laughs> I could tell you that. Um, so, and, and partly because Robert Jordan was one of the last ones to do it really well. And I think it's like, now it's kind of been done. Um, the other thing that I have to remember is that the Peter Jackson films were not out when this came out. Um, so because of that, Lord of the Rings always was popular. People loved it. But it wasn't like it is today, where everybody knows what Lord of the Rings is. Because everybody has seen those movies, it feels like. You know what I mean? Like, it's so common that I don't know if he would have chosen to do it had he written these books after the films. Because then it would be like, instead of an inside reference to readers of fantasy who love it, it's something that everyone who picks it up is going to pick up on. There is probably a large percentage of non-fantasy like readers that knew Tolkien, for sure. But he was doing it as an homage for fantasy readers. He was like, people who love fantasy are going to read this and get the homage. And like general audiences might come to it and think of it as fresh. And he made it clear enough to where I think you can say like anyone who's even like slightly read the beginning of Lord of the Rings knows that this, that this is being it's in conversation. No question. And so like, I, you know, I think at the, like, that's a good point to make that like the movies weren't out and it wasn't everyone in the world. It was fantasy readers or, you know large percentage you know more than just fantasy readers read lord of the rings but you know what i mean like it was it was primarily like in conversation with it for the hardcore fantasy readers exactly okay so i have three paragraphs of plot to summarize this first third of this novel uh, and i'm about to get into that before i do i just want to make a note um for the longest time i thought and, and, and in fact until doing research for this episode i thought that robert jordan was mormon um, I guess I got my wires crossed somewhere because Brandon Sanderson is, and I thought that he was as well, and that was like one of the reasons he chose him. Um, that's not the case. Um, as I said earlier, he is this uh, Episcopalian, 
um, Christian. He's a Christian, and he clearly was pretty religious to be receiving communion multiple times a week and all that stuff. So I wasn't wrong in the sense that he was pretty deeply religious, but just a little bit wrong about what exactly uh, he followed. So um, for those of you who care about such things, I just wanted to get that clear. It'll be interesting for me to, you know, I didn't really pick up on a ton of religious allegory yet, but like, you know, the good and evil devil, the God sort of thing is like kind of there. So we'll see like how that plays out if it becomes more religious as time goes on. Right. The Eye of the World's prologue, Dragon Mount, is set during the Age of Legends, roughly three millennia prior to the events of the series. The prologue introduces Luz Theron Telamon, the dragon, victorious commander of the forces of light in the war against Shaitan, the Dark One. His victory came at a cost, however, as a result of the tainting of Sedin, the male half of the true source, which was the Dark One's final act before his imprisonment, Luz Theron has gone insane and murdered his family. He is confronted by Ishmael, one of the Dark One's chief lieutenants who restores his sanity. Faced with the magnitude of his crimes, Luz Theron commits suicide, creating Dragonmount. The early chapters of the book are set in and around the rustic village of Emmons Field in the Two Rivers region of Andor, where most of the primary characters reside. Okay, so I'm going to stop here. We're going to talk about the introduction to the book. We're going to talk about this prologue, which is mostly what this little paragraph talked about. But then we'll also talk about the new prologue that was added. What order do you want to tackle these in? I think I would really, I would prefer to tackle it with Ravens first because okay. that was my first thing I read. Okay. That was the first thing in the book for me. So I read that. I read that last. I actually read the entire all the way up to where we were going to stop, and then I went back and read the Ravens. Um, so the last thing I read, but yeah, just to just to quickly summarize that, it's Egwene when she's nine years old. Um, and she is walking around. She's seeing ravens who are lo- watching the men of Emmonsfield, looking at her some. And then she overhears a conversation uh, between Rand, Perrin, and Matt where they're talking about some of this stuff. And, and um, I think Tam is going to tell the story of Luz Theron. And she hears some of that. And then it kind of sets up this next prologue. Because it's like, well, I wonder what the real story was of Luz Theron. It's like, I think the last line of this new prologue. And then it, it goes immediately into this this one that I just described. What was it like going from Egwene, the nine-year-old, to into that? Like, what did you, th- I guess, before even that, what did you think of this opening prologue? Like, how did it strike you? Yeah, so I have many thoughts on this. So you, I already read the prologue when you were like, oh, that's added. That's a new one. Mm-hmm. And it's made and you kind of told me it's like sort of more for a younger audience. And that's all you can. That's all you gave yeah. me about it. And I had already read it. And I, you know, I thought I kind of felt like in my mind, that was the beginning of like, that's how a lot of people experience the beginning of Eye of the World. And um I think it simplifies a lot of things like really early on to like get you to to, you know, let you know who's who, what the relationships are. And you can immediately, you know, the the Egwene Rand relationship is being set up heavily. You know that there's people say they're going to marry one day. They're going to marry. And like it's very heavy handed in in a sense. And and like and maybe not even in a bad way, but it is it is clear like what's being set up in a way that. In my mind, if I read just Dragon's Mount first, it would have been much different, much more like off the deep end. You're, ha- you're just like dropped into this really chaotic moment. And then we switch over to something yeah. that's completely unrelated, which is the two rivers. Welcome show. to me as a as a 12 year old reading this book. <laughs> right. But I, I do like that in a story. I like the deep end yeah. moment. I like I like I think jumping straight into stories. So, so like, for you like, as a modern reader, as an adult reader, you maybe would have done without. 
the prologue chapter? I, I think so. I, I think that I bet you tons of people get a lot out of it, getting to see them young, having already read the books. Yeah. I think people would probably love that to see them young because it is. It was kind of cool to see them at that age. I, you know, that that was kind of fun. I'll get, I'll grant it that. And uh, the other thing is that, like, I think it heavily, heavily gave some lore stuff that I felt like it, was it, like, pr- it provides context for what you're about to read that you otherwise right. do not have. When you read that first prologue, you don't know what the hell is going on. Like, I, I, you know, I had no idea what was going on. There's a couple things like within the stories that are being told to the children where, you know, I was talking to my girlfriend about it a little bit, Caitlin, and she was like, I wish that you hadn't read that, <laughs> having de- some of the details that I gave her. And she was like, I don't even know if you should verbatim say that because it's like almost borderline a spoiler for like books and books and books and books down the line. Wow. And I was like, OK, well, I, and I'm not going to mention it here. I think that like if you if people wanted to, they could go read Ravens and they could pick it out, I'm sure. But um, yeah, so so I guess my reaction to it is just like I kind of wish I hadn't read it, but it was fun. And, and it like it definitely handheld me enough to where like I feel confident in knowing exactly who the characters are, exactly sort of the paths we're heading down for now in the early goings of this novel. OK, so then we get Dragon Mount, the original and OG prologue to the wheel of time um that does throw you in the deep end um you you we meet loose theron as he's sort of wandering the halls of his palace there's chaos everywhere there's bodies everywhere he's calling for, he's talking to his dead he's wife talking to right? his dead wife who's like dead on the ground near him and he doesn't even know it like what what was your take on on this opening prologue i mean i have to make the, the comparison to other fantasy that I've read before, it felt very like Mad King a little bit to me where it's like you're getting this sort of li- like story from back before where something's gone wrong with a leader and like they were, you know, you don't really get any specifics, but you, you can see that some of the stuff. So you're referencing on, Song of Ice and Fire. Song of Ice and Fire yeah, with the Mad Which King came there. after, we, you know, so if anything, you know what I mean? If anything, maybe Jordan uh, or sorry, Martin was influenced by Jordan because it is interesting to note Luz Theron gets called Kinslayer here. Um, for killing his family, and there's a quite famous Kinslayer in the Game of Thrones series, and I don't know if there's any, you know, I don't know that Martin borrowed that or anything. I, you know, I'm not going to claim that, but it's just interesting. Great minds think yeah. alike. We'll just leave it at yeah. that, you know. Anyway, so let's let so to Dragon's Mount. I I really enjoyed it. I was I, I thought it was so cool and weird. Like you said, like someone sort of snapped him out of it. Also, yeah, this and, guy who shows up to taunt him like grants mm-hmm. him a moment of clarity. And an act that seems to be intended to just torment him, and then he use he uses that act that moment of clarity to to commit suicide with this clearly extremely important like uh, like this is going to be like as important as like some of the early things that we get in in Song of Ice and Fire. And I'll stop making the references yeah. at this point, <laughs> but like or or you could say Lord of the Rings, right? Like uh, talking about the movies, at least we got this flashback to the original war of the ruinings i think i don't know what that war was called but where the the ring gets cut off the hand right of sauron and um this similarly is like a big flash back to you know ages and ages ago um so but like i don't even know if that's clear at the time when you're reading it right because i no, it's not i think it gives it, it gives like lore heavy lore that i think like as a fantasy reader you know going into this this more innocent story that we get in the first chapter in yeah. uh, the two rivers, you know that like that is like lore that will become important yeah. as this story plays out. So, oh man, when I when I read that originally, I was like, how the hell are these two things related? Like you you get yeah. this prologue and then and then you all of a sudden we got these like young kids 
going about their daily life on a farm in, in a village. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, where do these things line up? You know, and it takes a while to really find out and you get little references to it. And, and then, yeah, you know, when you don't when you're not as familiar with fantasy um, and the way that authors tend to, to do these things like, you know, young Luke, I was just like, I don't understand like what that. Like I, I was almost off put by the start. Like it was interesting, but there's also just tons of. You almost thought it would never be readdressed. Like it was just this crazy one-off thing. Well, or... no, no, it was more like it almost lost me because it's disorienting. Um, yeah. That opening chapter for a young reader is is a lot to ask. You have some complex political situations being described you have a war being described there's a lot thrown at you there's tons of new terms neologisms um he he has invented so many words um that are not real and he's throwing them at you and you're and you're supposed to be like assigning meaning to them by context clues that's hard to do um that is a skill too because you at some points you as a reader you have to almost take a defeat there and just say, like, I don't get it yet. Yeah. But hopefully the you have to trust the author to, like, you know, loop, circle back mm-hmm. on it. So sort of like give you the context yeah. later. And and it's funny because I can imagine myself as a kid just being like, what? <laughs> yeah. This? You know, like, what does this mean? What is yeah. this one thing? You know? Yeah. And I, so I remember as a kid, I, like, I almost stopped reading the series after that first chapter. because I was like, I don't know if I can do this. Um, but I, I did get into the next chapter. So I was like, oh, OK, I can I can do this. This I can do. I, I, I like Rand. He reminds me of myself. You know, he felt like me, but maybe a little older than me. So someone to aspire to be. Um, and, you know, I, I grew up in a fairly, we, we both grew up in a fairly small-ish town in Florida, not like a village or anything, but like, it's not a major city, right? Like you're away from a lot of the big, exciting things that are going on. And so I, I identified with that, um, and feeling, feeling like kind of separate from the world in that way. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I just, uh, I, I, I found the prologue to be fascinating as a kid, um, a little off-putting, but then, um, yeah, I, I, it became this thing where I was constantly wondering, like, what it all meant. As an adult reading it, I loved it, and I was like, this is the kind of thing that would make me want to read this series now, because I would I would really, I would understand the purpose of something like this. I would see it as an ambitious start to a series, um, and it felt that way to me reading it now. It was heavy. There was, like, he's killed his own family like that's heavier than most stuff you're going to read uh, for for like a younger audience. So like it it um it's I think it's a great introduction to the series if you're an older reader. If you're a younger reader, maybe have someone read The Ravens first. Um so it's just going to depend on the reader what what maybe it's going to work best for you. Yeah, I it, I mean putting it in that context, I think it's that's definitely was the intention of Ravens, yeah. right, originally. Yeah, I, I guess it's been included in future volumes ever since that original split volume was released and it's in the one you have. Um, so we also, this is the first time we get to hear about the oily taint, um, on the, on Sedan and, um, get ready to hear about, uh, his oily taint a lot because we're going to hear about it. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I, I, to be honest with you, I had this thought, I was listening to the audiobook at that point and they kept saying the taint uh-huh. a lot. It was, the taint was in there deep and hard and, and stuff. Oily. And, and I was like, Dirty. was this a bet that Robert Jordan had with somebody that he could get taint into his, his story like a bunch of times? No, we just have, we just have dirty minds, James. Um, yeah. I just thought it was funny. Yeah. Um, and, and it's something that does get referenced quite a bit. Um, but I, I do want to know just your thoughts on your initial impressions on magic in, in the Wheel of Time, uh, what you saw in this prologue. And then what you've seen mm-hmm. later on, what what are your impressions on like 
what magic is like in this world. Um, do you like it? What, what do you think? Yeah. Well, it's it, so for one, it's, it's still extremely mysterious to yeah. me. I still don't really understand how the system overall. Uh, the idea and like I, I've heard you speak about this a little bit and my girlfriend has also talked about it. It's interesting to how gendered the yep. magic becomes and, and like that's definitely a topic that we're going to have to talk about. It's split into the female half of, of uh, magic and the male half of magic and the male half has been tainted by the dark one and the female half is un- untainted. And, and it's evil yeah. and, and aggressive and yeah. Yep. And it can't be trusted, and so they have to seek it out and destroy yep. it. So um, it's a, it's a gender binary that um, I do not agree with, but in the sake of this series is the canon. So that's what we'll go with going forward. But you know that that is absolutely a criticism I've seen people level at this series. I think it's totally valid. Um, he chose to break down his magic system this way, and it provides a lot of interesting conflict. Um, but it is it does lean into the binary of gender, which. Uh, is a myth so uh instead, yeah. yeah it's very like it, it's not very forward thinking it's kind of like you know very status quo for the time period and like yeah. i'm sure he didn't think anything of it honestly because yeah. he probably just didn't even deal with it's this. probably just something he had internalized and it was, right yeah something he didn't even think about so but overall i mean like i like that that it's powerful i like that there's levels to it because like we've like uh heard of bigger feats of magic and how in in years past that well you saw loose theron what he was able to do like his magic alone had like killed all these people and like there was earthquakes happening and he literally erupts into a mountain when he dies so that's pretty powerful (laughs) pretty pretty nuts yeah um I, i like that in my fantasy stories too like i want there to be i love seeing the characters struggle against impossible odds obviously so like knowing that there are forces out there that they couldn't possibly contend with currently uh it, it's fun it makes for like a really big world and uh yeah so far i i do like that there's like different uh, <laughs> there's a character that i really love so far and it's the gleeman yeah tom uh, Marilyn. tom yeah and uh, he's like borderline magic and mysterious enough to where you're like, what's going on with this guy? Mm-hmm. But he's like conjuring knives and shit and like fucking like do, like, like that kind of magic yeah. exists. His is well. more like slate of hand stuff. But yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Which I love. But but it's also kind of like a. Uh, yeah. Well, it's every, like maybe maybe there's more to yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, that's true across yeah. the board for a lot of characters. Right. Like what is going on? Yeah. Uh, I, I'm glad you like Tom Marilyn. He's he was also a, you know an early favorite for me. So that makes yeah. sense. The, um, of course, importance of certain weapons that, like, you know, people don't even realize that they're important and that sort yeah. of thing uh, is very fantasy-esque and, and, but appreciated. So, so yeah, let's talk about that. So, I, I basically am setting this up all the way up till Beltine. So, up till Beltine is the introduction. We meet Rand. He's with, he's with his father, Tam, Althor, and they're traveling into Emmonsfield. And um, they see this figure, this this writer, or Rand sees this writer who then disappears um, when he like looks back, and then he finds out later that Matt and Perrin also have seen writers, I believe. And um, what was your impression of meeting these three guys? Um, we hear talk about Egwene, who it's notable was not a POV character um, in the original version of the book, but in the new version now it's like when he mentions Egwene, you're gonna be like, oh yeah, that's that character from the prologue. So again, that changes that dynamic right. a little bit. I mean, like I, I didn't, I don't know if she is for the entire novel. You know what I mean? So if you're, you're oh, basically no, no. saying that um, she's not I, for the whole novel. I, I don't think it's a huge spoiler to say that this entire novel is from Rand's point of view. Um, for the, I mean, it's in the way that these early chapters are other than Luce Theron. Um, 
in the way that he, he's like semi omniscient sometimes, but I feel like it's closely mm-hmm. tied to Rand's perspective. Um, that oh, changes definitely. in future novels, but in this first novel, it's all from Rand's point of view. I, I think yeah. is my memory of it at least. So meeting Rand and his father, it's like the ultimate like father son sort of like uh, w- wish fulfillment, like sort of like what you would want out of a father. I think his dad. So like, you like you like Tam. <laughs> so right right away, so likable, yeah. so capable. So he just he just. He feels sturdy, right? Like he just feels like this rock that you can rely on. Oh, and then, you know, as the details sort of come out, he he's like, there's more to him that no one knows about. He's got this mysterious past. Yeah. He's clearly this there's more there's more to a character that no one knows about is a yeah, a good theme going forward. <laughs> we will that will come up again and again and again. Yeah. But uh, this is the, a play on the Tolkien thing, right? Like instead of the riders showing up and, and like all just attacking immediately. I liked the foreshadowing or not even foreshadowing at that point. It's really just like the tension there's building of yeah. there's a threat and it's looming and you know, it's going to show up again. Um, and at first it's described in a way where I'm like, is it evil or is it just mysterious? You yeah. know? And then well, that, and that reflects Rand's uncertainty and yeah. And everyone and everybody else who sees it, they're like, this is something that we should investigate. Like sort of the boys themselves are like, maybe we should investigate this. And it come to find out it's not something that they should be even trying to contend yeah. with, you know, it would have been well, like, the yeah. worst possible decision. If and they I actually did. really liked how individually they were dismissed, but it, when all three of them, came together and told people Tam tells Rand later he's like well once we knew all three of you had seen it and you're all three like solid boys like we know something's going on and so I also thought that showed like there was there were definitely times where he resists that sort of trope of the adults all are clueless and the kids know what's going on it's that's not really the case here right yeah. yeah, and especially someone like Tam, who seems worldly and to have all these secrets and to know more than he's letting on, I, I think it's safe to say, early on. Um, yeah, okay, so that, that sets up everything. We meet Nynaeve for the first time. Uh, we meet uh, the peddler. Uh, we meet uh, Padden Fane. Um, we meet Tom Marilyn. Um, so lots of characters are introduced here. But it, uh, this early, these early chapters are very pastoral they're very soothing and sort of calm there's this threat yeah especially because rand and tam are farmers too like they're shepherds we get a lot of descriptions of the simple life of emmonsfield how isolated they are from the rest of the world how they all are sort of like shepherds and farmers and blacksmiths and there's this ancient like building that is the inn um and it seems like there's a lot of history in this area but it's also like it's been static. Like life has been the same here for hundreds of years, it feels like. And um, they are sort of content in their sheltered status away from the rest of the world. And as a, like a modern reader, I know this is going to be shattered, right? Like this is not going to last. As a kid, I'm reading it and I'm like, oh, this isn't, you know what I mean? Like I didn't know that. I hadn't, I hadn't experienced Lord of the Rings. Um, and so that leads us to our next point where I'm going to read the next uh, paragraph, but it's kicked off by a literal kick. And that's when a trollic kicks in the door of Rand's home. Him and him and Tam have gone home before this, this, uh, the next day they're going to have this, uh, the, the Beltine, this, uh, holiday. And he does a good job of setting it up and talking about all the things that's going to go on the next day and setting up the event to where you're excited for it. And then they're getting ready to, to kind of lay down for the night. 
Tam locks the door for the first time. He's never done that before. And then he goes and gets the chest out and he gets his sword out and Rand's like, oh, I've never seen that before. Where did he get that? And, you know, there's a fun little, you know, bit where he talks about how, like, it's worthless to a farmer. Like, I should have sold it a long time ago, but, like, now he's using it. So um, there is, I think that's an ongoing theme uh, that we can get into more about, like, power and like what it means to have power and what you should do with it um but yeah we're getting a little bit of that here and then the door is literally kicked down by this trollic and everything goes kind of crazy um and i'll read this next paragraph here of of a plot summary so on the eve of beltine an annual festival celebrating the arrival of spring an unexpected attack by bestial trollocs and fearsome mildral seems to target Randall Thor and his two friends, Matram Cawthon and Perrin Ibarra, specifically. Hoping to spare their loved ones and the village from further attacks, the three young men resolve to flee the village by night, accompanied by Moraine Damodred and Aes Sedai and her warder, Alan Mandragon, Mandragoran. He's a Mandragon. Um, <laughs> as they attempt to leave, they're discovered by the innkeeper's daughter, Egwene Alvir, and a wandering gleeman, Tom Marilyn, who joined them. Okay, so that is the the events of Beltine. I think let's talk about that. And, and let's talk about each of these characters, too. I think I want to get your initial impressions of them. Um, let's start with... I guess let's start with Rand, like our main POV character. What's what's your take on Rand? I felt very similar to you. Um, he's he's the prototypical, you know, protagonist of a fantasy story at this time, like cis white, like, yep. you know, young boy who, uh, you know, I thought it was funny that he had he had a, he had like an observation at some point where he was like, and I suppose girls might find him attractive. And I was like, all right, no homo. Right. You know, it just felt like he was like he was like very clearly saying, I don't find him attractive, but I suppose girls might. I don't know. I just thought it was kind of very make that make that note. (laughs) Very hetero. (laughs) I like the character, you know, I think there's a lot of potential for greatness. And that that sort of chosen one thing is already like very clear to me. He's very he's very immature, right? Like he's never seen the world. He I mean, did you did you did you find him to be a bit foolish or or uh what was your take on him there or, or I mean a little bit, but like as to, is to be expected because we're going to experience this world through his yeah. eyes as we like are introduced to it. But uh, more like you can tell that he's like been raised, like raised correctly to where he's got like a good moral good compass. Head on his shoulders kind of, yeah, he, yeah. yeah. He's going to be the kind of person who will do what's right. And like, even if, uh, if the, something crazy happened and he was in like, like some sort of, responsibility was thrust uh-huh. upon him he he would probably try to turn it down first and then all right and then we're gonna maybe... get some we're gonna get some theorizing about the fates of these characters and, and then what's gonna go on with them i think at the at the end of the this episode because i'm really curious um to know what you think okay so let's move on from rand he's our he's our protagonist he's a he's kind of an author stand-in he's kind of a you know he's a wish fulfillment character he's the ultimate yeah fantasy wish fulfillment um character. I, I, th- I think rand is an absolutely fascinating character but i think in the first book is not necessarily the case. He's all right. I think he becomes a lot more interesting. Okay, so what about Matt Cawthon? What about Matrim Cawthon? How do you feel about him? Love it. Love Matt. Okay, so this is the kind of, and like it says a lot about me, but this is the kind of character that I loved mm-hmm. uh, as a kid and still do and kind of like the trickster. I love this, these kinds of characters. Um, kind of identified with them a lot. Yeah, he's 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 known for being a prankster. People don't really he's kind of the boy who cried wolf. Like people don't like to listen to him yeah. too much. Yeah, I identify with that a little yeah. bit. And maybe maybe not so much now cuz I've sort of Sure, sure. <laughs> he, he, he tends to be the kind of character that's like 
plays around too much and doesn't take things super seriously all the yeah. time. And uh, I, I like that about I love that kind of character yeah. and uh, the archer. He, he is kind of foolish, right? Like, I think it's safe to say. Yeah. Yes. He, he, yeah. Yes. For sure. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah, kind of. I mean, they all are good with a bow. I think that's that's specifically pointed out. I think Rand is, is maybe even the best when they when they all draw later. Um, and then you got Perrin Ebarra, um, who I feel like has done less in this early third of the book than I remembered. Um, but I, I don't know. What's your take on him? Do you feel like you have a good sense of who he is? No, I really yeah. don't. But I can kind of see the archetype of like a the kind of like uh, strong like more quiet reserved person the kind of person that like again like could be thrust if leadership was thrust upon them they'd be good at it but isn't seeking it out sort of thing you know blacksmith yeah uh protege so like it's that kind of like you know capable there was there was a description i really loved for perrin where he's like he's this big guy and when we first meet him he's in a crowd and Rand says that he could have pushed his way through, but instead he like very carefully picks his way through the crowd and is like apologizing to people who he brushes against. Um, yeah. And it just totally makes it's like he's a big guy who's very aware of his size and but doesn't want to like assert it and use it to, to like push people around. Um, and I think that's very yeah. telling for him. Um, Perrin is a character that I adore. He's maybe my favorite of these three. Um, they all, they all are great in their own way and, and their, their arcs are very unique and interesting throughout the series. Um, but you know, uh, I always loved Perrin. I love this like strong, silent type and who you haven't gotten much of a taste of it, but has a very deep, rich inner life, which you, you will get. Unfortunately, I think in later books is really where you get it. Um, okay. So, uh, then let's talk about Moraine and Land together, I guess. Um, the This pair, this Aes Sedai and Warder, what do you think of the Aes Sedai and Warder pairing? Like, what, this, this, what is your read on that? Like, what does that even mean? I mean, like, it, it's such a, I love the duo, obviously. I like, the, I like the way that they're taking someone who's more, like, combat-oriented and somebody who's more, like, magical and, like, having them, having, like, a warden, like, like somebody to, like... Uh, Almost like a ranger type person who's like you getting some Aragorn vibes from Lan, maybe? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but uh, maybe uh, I guess so. <laughs> but yeah, this idea of a character who you know is good in terrain, different kinds of terrains, and like good at tracking and understanding and hearing. Like I think he's we'll get to the attack, but he's like sort of the the, the beacon who's like, oh shit, attack! Yeah, we got to go fight. Uh, so. I like I like that character a lot, and then more. Well, that, that's just, all part of this, right? When they arrive in the, in the village and the attack's been going on, um, they hear that Moraine and him like ran out to the street basically to warn that the Trollocs were coming, and she like summoned yeah. Ball Lightning or something to like kill a bunch of them. Yeah, she's and, like insanely powerful yeah. and like super intimidating. I love like how mysterious, and of course, the, one of the most one of the coolest things you can do as a fantasy character is just say like. Oh uh, yes, this is this is the prophecy. This is how everything is supposed to be, and she keeps doing that. Once people uh, say something, the wheel the weaves pattern. is the will. Wheel wills. Exactly. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> and like having this like this external knowledge of like like knowing knowing better than anyone else could possibly know like the the events of what are going to go on and and uh, uh, like I said, sort of a Gandalf type character as well early on, where it's like the, like you know that everything's going to be all right as long as Moiraine is around, uh, it, or at least it feels sort of that way. 
And even if you thought that, even if you thought that there would be a situation she couldn't handle, then that's why Lon is there too. Like they, they, the, the duo between the two of them, like when she's like used up all her magic and healed everybody and done all kinds of crazy stuff, she needs to relax mm-hmm. and like heal up. Then you're like, okay, well he's got everything mm-hmm. covered as well. So you have like a double Gandalf protection situation. Yeah. Early on. Or, or Gandalf and, and Aragorn working together as a unit. Um, so funny mentioning uh, i will probably say lan a lot because that is the pronunciation i had internalized over 20 years um but i I think lan is how it's said in the audiobook and maybe that's what it really is i'll be curious i don't even know how you said said lan which is how i think it is in the audiobook and and i assume that's probably correct i just i may say lan just out of accident because that's how i've internalized the Mm name um but yeah i mean uh they're they're great right they're super interesting they're super mysterious and um, Lon is like, he's this badass who every time he speaks, I don't know about you, but I'm like hanging on every word. Um, and that yeah. continues to be the case for, for him going forward. He's always a character that I am just in- endlessly fascinated with, want to hear everything he's got to say. Um, and th- I'm also fascinated about their, their like what, why he's so like obligated to be like a sort of adjoined at the hip with her like i i don't understand their relationship very f- fully yet i get yeah. that like there's a bond between warder and there's Ace something and I there that you've heard yeah. reference but you don't really understand it that totally makes sense i know a lot i'm not going to share it with you <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah uh it is it is really interesting and you're asking the right questions right like how does it work why is he bonded to moraine what what is their relationship really like yeah i, I think it, those are all great questions um and then yeah i guess let's talk about uh Egwene. uh it, she is our pro prologue character who is now back and ends up joining the fellowship <laughs> as they're readying to leave uh what's your take on her as a character do you feel like you get a good sense of her i think ravens provides more characterization for Egwene than the original yeah. novel does that is one thing i will definitely praise about it is that it does a good job setting up her as a character in a way that we get taste we get like pieces of tastes of in the in the original version without that prologue but it, it, i i feel like i know the character better after reading that prologue in the in the sense of this opening yeah i mean definitely agreed because we're you know her pov how she's interacting with people she's like delivering what is she like like hay or pots of water yeah. or something she's like that she's buckets water. of water yeah and she wants to be the best one at carrying buckets yeah, yeah which i like yeah. a lot you know like that's a good characterization thing like right away where you can see that character yeah. Well, and she mentioned she wants to leave the world, like leave uh, Two yeah, Rivers one day. Which I love. Yeah. And, and I'm very like, th- this is probably my favorite character so far. Really? Um, yeah. Yeah. Because I, I love the like sense of adventure. I love that like the the relationship is being set up between Rand and Egwene, but there's tension, but there like heavy tension. And then there's also this like thing that Rand is having to grapple with is that she has her own agency. She she seems like she wants to go pursue other things out there in the world that might leave him behind. He feels threatened and he by doesn't that, know right? what his his future is going to bring cuz it's all up in the air. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I like that because like that's a character that like I would like to see Egwene go off and do whatever the fuck she wants. Well, and and we see that like Rand's ultimate it feels like his heart is in two rivers, right? Like he his life that he wants is in two rivers. He wants, he's yeah. like, and, and we get that Egwene, that's not necessarily the case. Like she dreams of leaving. She dreams of going elsewhere. Maybe that's just the next village over early on. Right. But when she gets, um, you know, the indication that she can go to Tarvalon or Tarvalon, I think is how they say it in the audiobook. Again, it's another thing that I've been saying in a different way for 20 years. Um, 
like she she's leaping at it. She's excited. And Rand doesn't know how mm-hmm. to feel about that. In fact, he, he gets kind of upset and they have this they have this argument about it. Um, and yeah, I, it seems like they're really sort of butting heads over this attitude towards the rest of the world. Um, and yeah. I think that's really notable to make a theory slash what I want to happen. I want to see obviously this this party break up and everybody go do their own things. I really want to see Gwen like go out on her own for a while and go pursue this thing and have Rand, whatever happens with Rand. I have other theories about what I think is going to happen. Uh, I, I can almost guarantee it's going to happen, actually, <laughs> that he, you know, at least early on, he's he's going to go have another course of action. I hope they split and then they have time apart for a long time. And then maybe then they can come back together and have a relationship later, because like right now, I think it's like I'd like to see them go become individuals and have their own stories and everything and then maybe come back together later. Okay. You, uh, if there is going to be a romance there, which which has well, been, I was going to ask you, do you do you feel like that is what's destined here? With the full understanding that I, you don't know. <laughs> yes, I, I think that it's very clear that there's no way that they don't end up together. But who's to say, you know, like, like, uh, it seems like the, it sounds like the, the story gets a lot more complicated as time goes on. So I don't know if it, both of them make it to the end or to their eventual, you know, uh, relationship or whatever that could end up being eventually. Okay. I know things, but I won't share. All right. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and then Tom Marilyn, you already mentioned one of your favorites. Um, I'd like to get your your take on Nynaeve, the uh, town wisdom, which um, is at the at the end of w- what we read. We read up to chapter fifteen, the end of chapter fifteen, by the way. Which at the end of chapter fifteen, she's showing up at the end to meet up with everybody. We'll get to that. But yeah, I just wanted to know your take, your early impressions of her. Big fan. She's like a big sister to the group or whatever. She's like not taking bullshit from anybody and telling people what they need to do. She doesn't take shit from anybody. And uh, she is like a wisdom Mm -hmm. already at a very young age, which I found to be really interesting because it's something that's not just like a farmer or, you know, a blacksmith or something. So that was cool to like get to learn about her and like how she came up really early on. Uh, and people like sort of some people don't respect her as much as they should, even though she's a wisdom yeah. because she's young and like, you know, the, the what can come of that. And then the interesting connection from the wisdoms to to the Aes Sedai. I, I, yeah, the connection between those two things and like getting more about the Aes Sedai, learning more about like the we've heard vague things. One of the only things that I know about the story is like the colors with the magic. And like I've heard people talk about mm-hmm. that. And like I know that like different colors. You're talking you about the a jaws. Yeah, I, we've heard reference the red red ajaw uh, was referenced right. at one point, but other than that, I don't think we've heard much about them. No, the red ajaw are the ones who hunt the the men, the, 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 fa- the, who the show false dragons, magical prowess. Say, yeah, yes. I want I want you to to also react to the uh, the 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 dark ones denizens, the the army of of the dark yeah. one. Um, we got Trollocs, we got Mirdral, and we got Drak- Drakar. Um, that are about to show up. Um, what did you think of these creatures and beings? I had to make the connection to like orcs in my mind for a little while with the Trollocs to like to like they're very orc like sort of bridge it. Yeah. yeah, and it's called literally called like basically troll orc. Yeah, so it's like almost like orcs and trolls and like there's something in there with that. Yeah. Now they are described as being in Robert. They're Jordan's like more defense. bestial. They're bestial. They're like, they have. They're like. Yeah. They're like. They're, they're all different too. Like some of them are like wolf-like. Some of them are like horns, like like a, like a ram, and they sometimes they have hooves and sometimes they don't. And yeah, they're like these like island of Doctor Moreau creatures or something. Uh, a little. It's bit. cool, and I, yeah, I, I like that actually too. Yeah, I thought it was really 
I thought it was really different, but just like the the clear fodder to be to be like the evil like underlings. I thought it was notable that like when I when I was thinking back to this opening where the Trolloc kicks the door down, I thought it was just one. I thought one Trolloc attack, but there was a bunch of them. And and they even like they give him the slip and they're described as being kind of dumb. And then Rand's in, Rand ends up killing one on accident. And yeah, you can tell they're like, yeah, they're the fodder. They're the they're the the stormtrooper of the series. I think that's safe to say. Yeah, which is fine. You know, we yeah. need that. We need that. And they're, they're, I'm sure that if one catches you in a corner and you don't have a weapon, it's not a great exactly. You know, I mean, they're supposed to be, to be powerful, in. and you're not a badass like protagonist character. Then yeah, you're probably in trouble. <laughs> right. Uh, but then you got the Mirdraw, who are our ring wraiths. <laughs> what did you think of them? Uh, they have this cloak that doesn't move. Yeah, I was having trouble dis- distinguishing like the Mirdraw to with the like. I thought that they were all sort of just like like shadow being. They they call them like the fall, the, the half men, the false the men, the fade. The fade like, yeah, the all, all, all those are stuff. all names for the same same being. So I was thinking, like, are they all sort of just, like, different incarnations of the same thing? Or are they, like, actually tiered? Is there a tier system to, like, how how deadly these ones are? Mm. Um, I'm assuming that's more of the case. But, um, yeah, the Merdral, very ringwraith. You know, they're on, like, basically horses chasing them and stuff, right? And then you got the Drakkar show up from the air. And I I couldn't help but think of the, um, what are those called, fell beasts or something in in Lord of the Rings? Yeah, the the, the things that the ringwraiths ride later. I kept thinking of those. And the way they screech... It's very reminiscent, right? Like the screech to alert, um, but they're different, right? And they're they're sort of they have these bat wings. I guess we haven't seen one up close or anything yet, but um, there's kind of a spooky moment where one goes up against the moon and Rand sees it. Um, uh, we're about to get to that. In fact, let me read the next paragraph because we're gonna get to that. So, chased by Trollocs, Mildral, and Drakkar, the seven companions make their way to the nearby city of Berlon, where they encounter Min Farshaw, a young woman gifted with prophetic visions, as well as Dane Bornhold, an officer of the Children of the Light. They also find Padden Fane, a peddler who was presumed dead after the Trolloc attack on Emmons Field. Also in Berlon, Rand and his two friends begin experiencing dreams in which they are taunted by an arrogant man who calls himself Baelzaman. Shortly before they depart, Nynaeve Almira, the village wisdom of Emmonsfield, arrives to retrieve the four villagers. And we're going to stop there because that's the end of the chapter we we finished on. Um, but yeah, let's react to that. So um, what did you think of this wild ride and how much did it remind you of Fellowship of the Ring and the ferry yeah. crossing and all this stuff? <laughs> Uh, so much. I mean, it couldn't have been more similar. They like get to there's. It's just so so similar. Um, but I liked it. You know, it was different enough. I like the idea of like these ferrymen like almost like robbing them, but then stopping short of doing that because like you know when people aren't looking, people get desperate and that sort of thing. And and then they get like they basically like tugboat them from the outskirts of the of the the uh, stream like all the way up it, uh, which I think is interesting as well. And um, we're seeing yeah, more Rain's uh, use of the power throughout in ways that I thought were really clever. Um, she, the fog. She, the fog, yeah. but then I, I actually really like the way she is able to um, reinvigorate the horses who are described as yeah. having like a lather and needing to rest. And she's able to make them be able to push on and on. Um, and then and then she even does that to the people. And then, yep. but Lan, uh, Lon, sorry, uh, says um, she can't, she only person she can't do that to is herself. So she's getting right. more and more tired as she's. Well, getting- I also think it's important to note too that like she can do that, but like he mentions that like the horses would gladly like run until they just died, yeah, like keeled over and died without even realizing it because she's almost like removing like a like a barrier that should be there sometimes, like like a, a will to stop because you need to before you die. Yeah. Um, 
So it's kind so of scary in that kind of spooky in that way, right? Like, yeah. yeah, you could. Yeah, it's like she's taking the safety off a little bit. Um, yep. Yeah. And we have to talk when we're talking about the fairy. We have to talk about the fact that like they pay them well, they get dragged along. And then at the end, they she she like and it's kind of like subtle enough to where like if you didn't if we, you could say like, oh, a random whirlpool. But it was very clearly. <laughs> yeah, she's was like, like, fuck your she's <laughs> like, fuck your fairy. You're not going to you're not going to help the enemy come yeah. come after us. And then they pay them pay them well for their fairy or whatever. They're just going to have to like. Yeah. Uh, get a new one. Yeah, she whirlpools that thing right down to Davy's locker, Davy Jones' locker. There we go. Yeah. Um, but we find that we hear word that ninety find found a way anyway, even after the ferry was sunk. Um, but that becomes yep. a, that becomes a thing they keep thinking about as our three got our three boys here um, all start to become a little bit mistrustful of her. And there's some even some talk of how they could maybe slip away and go somewhere else rather than go to uh, Tarvalin. Um, with well, her. and there's an interesting thing that's sort of known in the society that like they're dark fr- friends of dark friends or something like that. Was yeah, so that's some an important thing too. That like it's almost like in my mind so far propaganda to make you like distrust them a little bit. But then there's probably you're, you're saying that that Asadai are dark friends, right? Right, all the Asadai. It's yeah. like almost, and then it's a blanket thing. And then you know, Egwene and rand have an argument about the fact that like he's saying like you don't want to be an Aes Sedai like you like I don't know why you're doing this and she's like because I fucking want to because I have powers and abilities and he's like well they're dark friends and she's like you don't even know what you're talking about you're just painting everything with a broad brush right uh he yeah she she basically is like well she saved your father from death which we barely touched on um she literally brought him back from like the edge of death which uh, we're talking about like ancient power Moiraine mentions when she's doing that that like Aes Sedai at some points have been able to like basically bring you back from the smallest minuscule amount of life remaining in your body bring you back to full health mm-hmm. and she's like that the days of that happening is gone so like seems like power is waning currently where we're at and like magic has been waning a little bit yeah, at this point that's a good pickup yeah that, that that's definitely the case um yeah, one thing you said there I think is notable for like some thematic stuff going on which we'll, we'll talk about more in future episodes but um, the idea of the the stories about Aes Sedai, that they're all dark friends, um, being kind of propaganda and maybe not true. I think, But the, there has to be a touch of that that is true. Like, yeah. there's a reason why that's a, the, that is true. But, but the, um, you had said earlier, like, when I'm hearing these stories, I'm like, oh, that's fact. That's something I'm going to hold on to. But then, like, that, this isn't. So I think that's important to note, right? Like, it's it, you, the the nature of stories and the nature of opinion being melded into fact and how that can then seem like fact to people um which you know honestly is very um timely with what's going on in our country today um and i'm interested to see how much they carry on with this theme because it's a little more subtle but i wonder how much we'll get that in the show um but i think that is very important for the series and and the way that stories change over time and then how stories can be accepted as fact yet sometimes stories are not actually factual they may have nuggets of fact but they might also be wrapped up in opinion of whoever's telling the story yeah some of the like like you think of the stories that like tom was telling at points like there's like someone who was in like the breast of a bird that like flew to the moon like a fire yeah. i'm like that's like some sort of like ancient feat of magic that something that was important in some way and like like those kinds of stories i feel like are are like the ones where i'm like could also be metaphor well. right could be yeah, yeah. But probably not. Okay. But could be. Um, but like, I think, I think, like, you know, the ancient stories are, are more easily 
because of the way that they keep talking about how like um the pattern and like like things come and go with the wheel and the, mm-hmm. like it seems like they're like it's definitely setting up for the fact that like everything comes back around and like there's like a there's like a wave to it like magic come rises and falls yeah. and, and like you know events come and go and uh i mean even this um being the dragon reborn stuff it seems like the dragon like the fact that it's even reborn is like a cyclical thing as well so everything seems like there's a lot of you know cyclical nature yeah. to it and also you know I, the dragon reborn feels very much like a uh jesus kind of thing right like jesus being reborn like as uh and then there's the antichrist and all that stuff i don't know i'm not i'm a, I'm a you know i'm not a christian anymore i was raised that way and i've forgotten a lot of stuff but i think that's like canonical for christianity yeah. that there's going to be a second coming so, I mean, or something like, right he's like yeah he like dies and rises again basically. well yeah originally that, that, before yeah but like he's going to come back again right isn't that supposed to happen oh yeah yeah i think yeah it's supposed yeah, to be a second like, coming or something someday yeah someday <laughs> yes, that's, that's the idea so that's kind of similar to the idea of, of the dragon yeah. being reborn someday right one day it'll come and that's again, kind yeah. of the way people treat it right it's like it's mm-hmm. like almost a religious thing but then when people come back and they claim hey i'm me that's me i'm the dragon reborn everyone's like no you're not um yeah. that you're yeah you're a false dragon well, let's. You talked about the devil too, so let's talk about this. Uh, the visions, the dreams, the, the interactions that Rand is having specifically, mm-hmm. and then up to the last one, which is like, he fucking says his name or whatever. And I thought Balzaban. That's what he says. He says some people call me Balzaban. Sauron is like communicating directly with with uh, <laughs> Frodo right now. Like you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like it's a, there's no question in my mind that he's like keyed in, keyed in on Rand, and said like you know you're you're this like fucking second coming of a of a dragon well, potentially he, yeah i think he says like are you the one or are you going to be sort of used by the white tower right and he says mm-hmm. you're gonna be a tool of the white tower um and it's also notable that perrin and matt had the same dream it seems like um so so what what does that tell you about this conversation he's having with him if they all had a same dream i like the idea that they were seeing the uh Merdral, they were all seeing that there there's it's basically said that like and like this is pulling up from a lot of other stuff, but at this point we know that Moiraine has said like this area, uh, the two rivers used to be great warriors and and this and that, and they have they flourished and they fought alongside the Aes Sedai and and all these other like feats that they did. And she's like, it's so sad to see you guys in your current state because it's like you're no longer that great those great people anymore. Yeah. And and we're getting that, and they used to fight the, in the uh, the what is it the trollock war and, mm-hmm. and all that other stuff so now they're, they're now they're just sort of like more meek and they're not doing as much and and uh these three boys like they're looking for someone of this age for a specific reason that's what the merge are here and they're looking at all the boys in town and you know so i think that this is like a prophecy this is my theory there's like a prophecy that's been foretold that there will be a boy who, who's you know born again from this area potentially and so it, I wonder if it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy where like the this devil character or whatever is going to choose one of these three and then that person will become the, the Dragon Reborn or if one of them is actually the Dragon Reborn because they're, they each seem special enough to potentially be it. But as we like as a reader, as an adult fantasy reader, I can see that Rand is the main character and he's probably going to be the one that it is. Um, so I guess I'm just curious to see if it is sort of like a an option or if it, it was Rand all along. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, we, of course, we get uh, Tam. The, one of the most important things is like Tam when he's been hurt by the 
by the Trolloc, he's sort of hallucinating and giving all kinds of crazy details. Had a poisoned blade that was forged in Mordor itself. I mean, not Mordor, <laughs> not Mount Doom. Um, yeah, yeah. Shaitar. So he's he's dragging him along and he's saying all these things. And we find out that Rand isn't actually, T- Tam isn't actually Rand's father. Yeah. Or at least that's the implication yeah. that we get. Not only like, is he okay. potentially a chosen one, he's also an orphan, a secret orphan. <laughs> an orphan, a secret orphan. And, uh, you know, it's uh, the secret orphan is a fun, a fun trope. And uh, yeah. I'll be excited to see how it goes going forward. And the way that prophecy and, and like uh, memory and, and important moments are sort of like changed. It. I, I like that we get this like snowy battle where Tam finds Rand basically. And yeah. like I, I like that's going to stick He's out. He's talking my mind to his like, dead wife I... and they have this unknown. He has this unknown parentage. Right. Well, and it's said that he has he has these like blue eyes that no one else has. And he's taller than everyone else in two rivers. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a thing that I ha- connect eventually somewhere down the line. So like that's a, it, that's a mystery, right? There's a lot of mysteries yeah. already stacking up. I, I think it's safe to say. Um, all right. I want to ask you about Min. I want to know what your what your take is on this character. She gets introduced in the final chapter we read. So you haven't got much of her. She shows up and she says that she has a special ability. I just, yeah, I, it's one of those, it, it, being the last chapter too, I didn't even, I haven't had a, a ton of time to process, but I think that you are led to believe as the reader that like whatever at least me having read a lot of fantasy like whatever she's saying is probably again like factual in some way she's dropping lots of prophecies right she's basically a fortune like she can see things on people that like predict the future is what basically what she says and then she starts dropping stuff like crazy about about lon about uh moraine about all three of our main guys like she's just dropping 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 and you don't know what to make of them, right? There's tons of images. There's like a dagger. There's, you know, you know, there, there's three women by a funeral pyre. And like, or, or, there's all this stuff. I literally, like, yeah, all of those details like flew by me. Yeah. yeah. Like I couldn't have pulled any of the specific details. Yeah. Really. There's so many. There's there's like uh, uh, there's a crown of like uh, leaves or something. There's a sword like there's stuff with lawn. There's like, um, you know, there's all these things. Right. And, and you're like, what does that even mean? And then she starts like making these interesting references about her and Rand. What did, did you make anything of that? Or did she was just being weird and she was like laughing at him as he leaves and stuff. And she's being kind of creepy, honestly. Yeah. It's tough to like kind of parse through and figure out what's going on there. Okay. She, she, yeah, it's very mysterious and fair enough. I think we can leave it at that. She's mysterious. Um, okay, so yeah, I think now let's just talk about any other. I want to know your other theories before we wrap up here um, about what's going to happen going forward. Where is our group going to go? Are they going to make it to Tarvalon? Um, are they going to are these are they going to have to fight these Trollocs and Mirdral and beyond that? Where do you think we're heading with this first book? So I like I've said kind of. Of course, I think we're going to get to the. Um, Rivendell type area, which would be like this, like uh, magical area with Aes Sedai, and uh, you know we're gonna get all of them just like reveling in all this magic around them, and what a different world it is from where they're from. Uh, and then I think that the, I really do think that this party is gonna break up. I think they're gonna have different uh, things going on. I think that they'll have different goals. At least that's what I hope. I would like to see it kind of blow open and and have everybody have their own interesting path that they take. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's tough to know whether, you know, as a first book, you have to think that there's some sort of arc and closing 
like you know closing movement or something that happens at the end to like sort of make a satisfying ending for the first book but also tease you for the for the next and I, i don't think i really have all the information to figure out how this first novel because i can see the overarching sort of enemies and things building up and you know wars and tension between peoples and and like things that are like powder kegs ready to blow but at the same time like i don't know which specific thing is going to be picked for this novel here and what like the the final conflict would be of this novel okay so so let me ask you this though you you mentioned before that you are predicting and you you you're thinking that maybe rand is destined to be the dragon reborn is that accurate right. to say? So they're going to run into the uh, the the false dragon that they keep talking about. That they'll definitely Logan. be running into him. Yeah. Okay. And what does that what does that mean? If if Rand is that the darkness wants to capture him and use him, as Moiraine has said, she wouldn't let happen mm-hmm. because she would kill him before she let that happen. And what would that mean? His role would be in the story to fight against the darkness. You know, to be the beacon of hope and everything. To to be the person who would. Uh, How's he going to fight him? <laughs> good question i don't know that i have enough yet but uh okay because I, I don't know what the threat's going to be f- at the end of this novel so but whatever it is i think rand is gonna you know uh almost unwillingly pick up the sword or you know metaphorically or literally pick up take up the sword and and like fight for what's right and and you know save at least a small maybe not the world but like a small conflict or something from some sort of darkness overtaking them in this first one okay I think that's a good place to leave this. Um, I think we should describe our sort of unusual plan for how we're going to cover this project. It's a little different than what we normally do. So this is how it's going to go down for us. We are going to be doing five episodes on The Wheel of Time, The Eye of the World, and the first season of the Amazon series. You are listening to episode number one. Good job. You did it. Um, Episode number (laughs) two won't be coming out until December 2nd because next week we are going to be taking the week off for Thanksgiving and we are going to be putting out a From the Vault episode, which is one of our formerly a Patreon exclusive episode that we're going to release on the main feed. So you will be getting that, um, but not Wheel of Time until the following week where we, we do the part two of the novel. After that, we will be doing our first episode on the show itself, and that'll be on December 9th. That episode will be coming out in which we will cover the first four episodes, uh, episodes one through four of of season one of the Amazon series. Then the following week on the 16th, we will release our final book episode where we finish out the Eye of the World. um, And then the following week after that, we're going to be covering a different project. So <laughs> we're going to be doing a fantasy project, but it's going to be a, it's going to be like a Christmas theme. Um, and that's because the way the timing worked out, unfortunately, the, the series finale is coming out a little bit too late for us to be able to tackle it. And what that means is we're going to push our final wheel of time episode to the following year in early January. You'll be getting the final episode covering the rest of the series Um, so you'll have to wait a little bit on that one and we hope you do. Um, so that's going to be our fairly unusual schedule here going forward. Um, but, uh, that's the only way that we could find to do it in this kind of, uh, you know, crammed holiday season coming up. Um, but yeah, we hope you join us for all these episodes on wheel of time. It should be super fun. Uh, I'm going to be really interested to see how your predictions change, uh, in this next chunk here or stay the same or evolve. Um, uh, I'm very excited for that. 
Uh, and I hope you enjoyed listening to this. If you did, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever podcast app you chose to listen on. Uh, and if you're on YouTube, give a like to the video and make sure to subscribe to the channel and comment. Uh, a lot of different uh, providers have ways that you can comment on episodes directly. And we'd love to see some of those because usually we get notified and we can come and like respond to them. That'd be a lot of fun. Make sure to connect with us on social media as well. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. And recently we start, we opened our Discord to everyone who wants to be a part of it. So we have the information on our on our Council of Inklings on Facebook. It's a Facebook group. And then also, if you wanted to join in, you could just message us on any social media platforms. Let us know you want in. And um, all you have to do is just have listened to one episode. And we, you know, we have more intimate conversations in there. Yeah, we'll send you a link. It's a lot of fun. Like, uh, we've had conversations about you know, everything from other other nerdy like fandoms that we like, our pets, like just video games. Yeah, you yeah. know, all kinds of stuff. Uh, we'd love to have you on there. Absolutely. If you would like to support this podcast, if you like the things that we do and you want to give us a little bit of financial support, we would much appreciate that. And the way to do that is to go to patreon.com slash ink to film and you can uh, sign up to multiple different tiers. Um, find the one that suits you best. We'd love to have you on there. If you do that, you're going to get bonus episodes every month that are adaptation adjacent or experimental in some fashion. And um, we'll be releasing another one of those in November. We are going to be watching the uh, original uh, David Lynch 80s version of Dune, which was one of our last major projects. Um, I want to circle back to that. which, by the way, I didn't even mention this in the episode, but I want to mention it here. I was catching some Dune references. I'll be interested to circle back. Maybe I'll, ne- yeah. next week I'll talk about that more since we kind of ran out of time. I was really happy to go from like a sci-fi fantasy to like a more yeah. like high fantasy. Yeah. Like, like you know, it was just a lot of fun. I love I love going from major, major project to another major, <laughs> massive project. Yeah, we don't normally do that, but we're doing it here. I mean, we had Carrie in between, but yeah, we're, we're doing that here for the most yeah. part. Um, anyway, uh, we'd love to have you over on Patreon. That's what that was about. <laughs> Okay, man, that's going to be it this week. Um, I'm so excited to read another chunk of this book. I hope you are enjoying it as much as I am revisiting it. Sounds like you are. I really am. All these all these little details that you've been giving me, I'm, I'm now going to like rewire my mind and, and like like maybe see things from different perspectives and pay attention to certain <laughs> characters a little more. I'm so trying not to give you too many, too many hints, but it's, you know, it's hard when you're having these conversations. We have to talk yeah, about it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, All right, and until next time, keep adapting.